cue motivational music. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name's Dean and I'm a designer on a quest. A quest to further understand the creative industry and learn as much as this noggin will hold. Join me as I share my discoveries and tap into the minds of some of the most well-respected creatives in the world. This is my creative therapy. Hello and welcome to episode 14. So today I'm joined by Amazon's head of design at the Internet of Things, Joanna Pennebickley. Uh, in this episode, Joanna talks about how she transitioned from journalism into the design industry, uh, how brands are redefining their values, the future of design for new technologies, the working life of an Amazonian, and loads more. It was a real honor to have Joanna on the podcast, and I left feeling super inspired. Um, also a little bit jealous that she talks such a good design game. Thank you so much for doing this, um, Joanna. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to to have you on and speak to you. I'm a big fan. I've been following some of the work that you've been doing through LinkedIn and other sort of channels for a while now. Um, I see you studied uh, journalism in Chicago. Is that right? I did. I did. You know what? I actually started out my career as a journalist um, mm. prior to that point. When I was in high school, I had an opportunity to... Um, intern at a television station. And I was a really good writer. And so I took that opportunity. And what ended up as kind of a, an internship for a sophomore in high school, which was unheard of at the time, because it was generally reserved for college kids. Um, I looked at it and said, you know what, um, a kid like me is never going to get a front, uh, front door enter. I'm going to have to kick the side door open to get into any industry. And so I ended up kind of translating that into from you know December internship to winter job to they couldn't get rid of me Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and funny and so funny enough as much as I enjoyed writing um, when I went to school you know what I I actually stumbled onto when I was in Chicago was you know that love for invention and so one of the first things that I ever did um, happened to be around innovating and invention and um, you know one of my key duties when I was uh, down in Texas as a reporter was you know scheduling things like satellite time um, because we're talking about the early 90s so we still didn't have streaming video yeah um, and so when you know I approached it I was kind of early days and tinkering with technologies um, like media 100 and you know in those technologies you had to learn to code because if you wanted basic animations to video and in that visual storytelling you had to know that but um, you know, looking at that, I one of the things that I did was invent one of the first media players uh, in the space that ends up then getting used by TV stations across you know, the United States. Wow. And that is how I stumbled in to what I do today. Right. So, I, you know, I was a really good storyteller. I enjoyed loving the story, but the craft of the storytelling, um, I truly had uh, a passion for. And mm. so consistently I would find myself, you know, relying back on that key storytelling mechanism, but realizing deep down the thing that I was so passionate about was invention. Right. It was problem solving. Um, And lo and behold, you realize, well, that's core to design. That is what design is. And 
as every teenager will tell you, um, and I look back on it and chuckle, like I was the most rebellious teenager, but in fact, I really wasn't because all I was doing was trying to get away from anything that your parents said you might be good at. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a designer. Oh, nice. Okay, <laughs> so, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, my, and I say was. My mother is a designer. Wow, Let me start that's this. Awesome. She just happens to be retired from a 30-year company uh, design firm that she built in wow. San Antonio, Texas. So here I, I grew up at the knee of a great designer, okay. right? Um, I just happened to be a tinkerer and innovator, and my passion for design was in technology, um, which really interesting to me today is those two things have now come together. They have yet met again in the Internet of Things. Mm. And so that idea that we are designing uh, in technology for space and time, not virtual worlds, but actual space and time in people's lives um, and in the very specific spaces. So, you know, <clears throat> in commercial real estate, the internet of things is growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a background in understanding architecture and the tools that architects and engineers in those spaces use in order for them to connect up these buildings so that they are safe, they are far more efficient, um, and they provide a service to people when they walk in the door. Mm -hmm. So What's interesting to me is that, you know, while uh, as a, you know, as a kid, uh, you know, was always an inventor, I would never have said, oh, well, I'm also a designer, right? Mm. Um, and what I realized is that is part and parcel of being a designer mm. is invention. Um, and I just have, like I said, utilized technology my entire life um, as a method to invent new things. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's awesome. That's great. Um, it reminds me a little bit of myself, to be honest, if you don't mind me saying. Sure. Just because I've always had this sort of this entrepreneurial, I've always been very driven. It's not very often that I come across a creative that doesn't really have a similar sort of mindset. It seems as though whether it's a designer or or someone who uh, works in the background of design and strategy or something. They all, we all seem to have this sort of this, this similar mindset in that uh, anything's possible and we want to get our work seen somehow. That's great. And it's great to hear that your your mum is a designer too. So it runs in the family. Yeah, Creativity runs in I the am, family. Here's what I will tell you. I am a second generation designer and somehow I produced a third generation. Nice. <laughs> because my daughter is a uh, light and stage designer in New York City. So uh -huh. that, that ability to you know, problem solve, mm. um, but do so artfully. You know, yeah, that yeah. is for me, the love of being able to solve a problem, you know, when in my early career it was solving communications problems, okay. um, you know, today it is, you know, and, and I would say that early in career, then you were solving business and marketing problems. Mm -hmm. And today it's really solving human problems at scale. Um, and that for me has been my life's work is looking at systematic problems, whether we look at, um, you know, environment and climate, whether we're looking at the way that we uh, behave every day and that behavior contributes to climate change or the way, you know, one of the things I'm incredibly passionate about is looking at democracies. Mm -hmm. Right. And innovating democracies in a way that continues to be open source, but is secure and private. 
Yeah. Um, and so then you can look at a career that, you know, started out in solving small problems, uh, often ones of my own making, um, <laughs> then, uh, and then, you know, kind of systematically um, working towards larger and more systematic problems. And my mother's work in, you know, it was interesting because I look back at her career where she solved, you know, commercial and residential problems. And then she got to work in her own firm, you know, systematically for the United States government and working with them as a contractor and designing, you know, everything from uh, core to military bases oh, um, to, you know, really working on some of the big systems plays that they have in the way that the government actually works. So, what becomes super interesting to me is that design, um, as I lay in this generation, is really important to the world at a time when the world has tremendous complexity and problems. Mm -hmm. The thing that we're really great at is simplifying and inventing. Yeah. Right. And I think that's our opportunity to no matter what kind of designer you are, right. Or creative that you are, that you are both, passionate and, um, you know, always seeking to kind of up level and frame problems in a way that, uh, truly have an impact on people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally true. And just going back to what you were saying about simplifying things, it almost feels like it's it's so necessary to simplify these things uh things these days with how quick things have come along and how sort of complex things seem to be and it's it reminded me of a it might have been your latest article that you did where i think it was design 2020 where you said um i've got a quote here it's uh, generation z has arrived and they expect intelligently designed brand experiences gen z's 44 billion dollars of disposable income has triggered a tsunami of change as industries race towards 2020 and in, in my opinion it feels like it, it's kind of aligned with what we we're saying but it, it feels like brands are sort of sitting on the edge waiting for the next big thing to jump on and there's there's that and there's the uncertainty of whether or not they should be jumping on everything that comes up and all these complex issues and whether they should just you know sit back and take a breath and simplify simplify things so if i just widen that aperture a little bit and i think where brands sit today right is look if you look at industry uh, and I think it's important for us to open the the brand aperture to brands live inside of industries, right? And every brand, small, medium, or large, um, has a, a commercial industry. And we are at the nascent stages of the fourth industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know this, and you can look back at human history and say that at the nascent stages um, of an industrial revolution, there are tremendous opportunities because in the hundred years that preceded it, we made things super complex. And so those opportunities to change are simplifying things uh, and getting back to core values. And what I have seen from brands, which is incredibly exciting, is to sit back and redefine their values for the next century. 
Mm. Um, I don't necessarily think they're sitting on the sidelines by any means, but the thing that they are doing is understanding that a brand is not only its marketing message, but the manner in which it engages its customers. And so when you think about that, you go, oh, it's not about what we say to our customers. It's about what we do for our customers. Mm -hmm. And maybe, just maybe, we're not doing enough to stay competitive. And so therefore, what I need to now do is look back at the entire company and how it is designed to serve my customer versus tell my customer something. Mm. And that has triggered... You, everything from a reevaluation of um, supply chains um, to how companies operate. And the exciting part of where brands are now playing is looking at the enterprise wide and saying the brand is no longer uh, just a holding or an asset of the marketing department, but it is part and parcel of how we serve our customers mm -hmm. and how easy we make it for them to accept whether uh, access our services or whether it's um, uh, a, an actual product, a physical product and good, or you're talking about materials. And what's exciting to me is that for the first time, all the things that were core to branding uh, is core to experience design. And that experience is no longer just a front-end marketing problem. That is a CEO-level problem mm -hmm. where they're looking, going, you know what? It is time for us to reinvent the way we move around the planet, thus mobility. It is time for us to rethink the way that we power industry with renewable energy. And it is time for us to think about about this transformational connectivity that we have, which is the internet of things. Mm -hmm. Those three forces are at play right now in our society, and they are transforming not just the way that we do things, but the way that we expect um, our infrastructure to work. And those high expectations um, truly have a, an end effect on your customer. And so when you're not simplifying and inventing consistently, um, your customers get super frustrated. And I bring up this one thing because you and I today sit in democracies that are in crisis. Yeah. Um, and I bring this up today so much of if you think about the brand of democracy and you think about each one of them has a brand, right? We have ideals and values. That intersection of you know brand design um, and the ideals of democracy are actually one in the same. We all have values and we all have things. How we carry out or people experience those values or how those values are potentially accessible to people in these democracies is often the difference between an agitated public right, and a public who is trusting of their government. Mm -hmm. When things are complex, and designed in a manner that are complex. You and I know out of the branding world that that does not instill trust. Mm. And so most of what we are seeing today is a complete agitation and turnover system of people who expect the uberization of our democracies. Mm -hmm. And so what is exciting is that you're seeing pieces of that start to happen. It's really painful. 
right? For those of us who are a little bit older and are probably not a little susceptible to change, but that Gen Z, right, are some of the smartest, most articulate leaders mm -hmm. that are inspiring this level of game change. And I think that, you know, like every industrial revolution, the flip side of that revolution is opportunity. And it's an opportunity to think, it's an opportunity to do, and it's an opportunity to design, you know, that life-saving piece of equipment that helps a veteran, right, come back from a wounded warrior and be and have access to, you know, work and have access to opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then it is also an opportunity um, for us to rethink the way that we engage with government. One of the things most exciting thing yeah. to me in the Design 2020 research that I did um, was the work that is being done by these digital groups inside of government. And that transformation of democracies in government um, and one of the bills that's actually sitting in the United States Congress that was uh, crafted by Kamala Harris is called a digital services bill. That digital services bill stands to create small teams, um, that small team startup innovative uh, practice that you and I know that within brands has worked for time immemorial for governments to start thinking about how do we rethink the IRS, what you know the Internal Revenue Service, and so mm -hmm. we can pay taxes and with great transparency see where those taxes are applied to in our local governments. You know, you look at that, you look at the Environmental Protection Agency here in the United States, and you say, gosh, all we ever hear about is red tape and regulations. But in fact, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could track and monitor my, my contribution to the air quality in my city mm -hmm. at an individual level? It's when we start to do those things that we have an opportunity to go. We will redefine what democracy means um, and design will lead it, but it will come from that intersection of values, mm -hmm. right? It will come from that core intersection of, do we understand the pillars of values? And it is no different than the brand work that most large brand companies do when you think about what are the values of this brand, right? What are, yeah. what's, you know, you go back and go, the brand pyramid, you remember those things, mm -hmm. right? So now you start to look at it and go, who are the people who can orchestrate that change, right? Yeah. Um, who can look and be empathetic to, you know, the things and the needs in some of these emerging spaces, you know, cannabis, really mm -hmm. interesting thing that's going on here. You look at space and astropreneurship. Um, I, you know, I called it democratic design, but that's with a small D. And I don't mean for the party of Democrats. I mean, <laughs> for the, the purpose of saving democracies. Yeah. Um, and then you look at the, you know, the data and ethics that at this time, we actually have to have a conversation about in a time when both of our democracies were attacked by information warfare, mm -hmm. right? And when, when information warfare is used to confuse society, what that effectively does is slows down the solutioning to the next thing. And it takes people off the sidelines 
um, often to do the wrong thing as opposed to, you know, let, let's not be a Twitter slacktivist. Let, let's actually get out and, and do something for our company or have our companies start working towards its end. So I come from it in a very optimistic space because what I am seeing is there are a lot of both companies and individuals all working towards these ends mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or fashion. You know, 10 years ago, you know, you look at the brands who were talking about sustainability, and it was a very small amount of brands, right? Or that were talking about inclusion or inclusive design of their products. Mm. And it was so minuscule. So when you see brands like Unilever, right, and the chief marketing officer yeah. of those kinds of companies spearheading initiatives of not just inclusion, but, um, you know, going far beyond and putting ethics into their brands, I think we're in a new day. And I think branding has a more powerful place than it has ever had. And design can be one of the biggest players in that because the one thing that I know about designers is that the greatest designers that I've ever worked for have been inspired to work with are systems designers. Mm -hmm. And those systems designers know how to play or conduct the orchestra, right? And it's an orchestra of different disciplines and people, but yet they make music. And sometimes they make jazz, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hip hop. And it can be all of these great things. But just like a conductor of the orchestra, design is design and those creators, right? Whether you were a designer or you're a creative thinker, um, are at the forefront of orchestrating this change mm -hmm. in a time um, where I don't know that we have the choice and time is of the essence. It's, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it's such a disruptive time. And it's tricky for, uh, I've spoken about this a few times with a few, few people on the show. It's tricky for how disruptive it is for traditional brands to uh, still communicate the same messages they were 10 years ago. Uh, today without alienating their existing audience and it's it's the, it's this massive sort of change and it's a it's a subject which yeah it gets fire under my belly and it it, 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 it does mm. it, here's what i will tell you what it, in that in the communications thing i said i would tell you that um you know most of the we could say 100-year-old brands, right? Mm -hmm. I look at 100-year-old brands and you go back to industries, 100-year-old industries like automotive, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, um, you know, liquor marketing. You know, you can look at any one of these marketing segments and say, okay, those people have been around for 100 years. But I think what I am seeing systematically happen is that technology you know, the, the accepting that you, you have a choice to sit on the sidelines in the middle of this industrial revolution, mm -hmm. which very likely is going to put you in the position of being disrupted versus the disruptor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what everyone is thinking is how do I disrupt? How do I disrupt? And in reality, I think the conversation needs to go a little bit div differently and say, how do I reinvent? Mm -hmm. How do I reinvent my business that from, was doing this in the first 100 years of its, of its existence so that it can exist for the next 100 years? 
right? Yeah. And it can exist in a more inclusive and a more profitable way um, mm -hmm. because that's what most CEOs are up against. And, and the chief marketing officer has this really unique place today um, you know, where they were the early leaders often in um, – you know, digital marketing and understanding the tech and the tools. Yeah, yeah. And so the CMO is playing a really unique, I kind of call the CMO, the CEO whisperer, okay. right? Yeah. Because in the end, what, what you know for sure is that if your customer experience is phenomenal, there's too much history and too much evidence that say when your customer experience is divine, that so will be your profits mm -hmm. and your bottom line to your shareholders. Yeah, yeah. There's no difference. That thread is there. The mm -hmm. proof is in the pudding. What I'm seeing is a trans a time of transformation, right? And so by walking in the marketing door, often what you're going to get is folks who are thinking about what they're going to say to their customer. But what's really been interesting is the emergence of the CXO role, right? The chief experience officer, or I've often seen, and I talk about it in design 2020, which is the emergence of the chief design officer. Mm -hmm. And the chief design officer is looking at things in a holistic brand way to say, I'm not just worried about how we look. I'm worried about how we work. Mm -hmm. And so that orchestration of marketing um, and operations and supply chain, right, to get to an end benefit, a faster end benefit to your customers is a winning strategy. Yeah. And it, it kind of reminds me of how well uh, Amazon have done. It seems as though Amazon are a brand who who really took risks and, uh, you know, went left field when everyone was going right and sort of just did the unimaginable and the unexpectable. And they're now reaping the rewards <laughs> massively. And it's a, it's a brand that I've sort of been following for years and years and years. And it's, it's super inspiring. Um, I think I might have seen an article that you, where you mentioned Jeff uh, Bezos, Mm -hmm. uh, the founder and CEO of Amazon, um, and I remember seeing the, the the famous photo of him sat on the sat in his small office with the Amazon poster in the wall, which looked like the the logo had been yeah. graffitied on. Uh, and I remember you saying, sort of, uh, he in, he inspires you and stuff. Do, do you think it's is entrepreneurship and his passion for moving into these sort of these un, unknown spaces that that do that? I, I will tell you, um, being an Amazonian, you know, we, we talk about our culture as being peculiar. Mm -hmm. um, but what's peculiar about us is that we are pioneering. And I think, you know, Jeff's, um, you know, original vision and intent, uh, you know, behind, you know, starting as, you know, the the one of the world's, you know, place where you could go get books, mm -hmm. um, you know, is so at the heart of everything that we do here. Um, it okay. is an incredible culture to work for. And I will tell you, it operates unlike any other company on this planet. And so much of this is because 
you know, often leadership principles are principles that they hand you out on the first day and you walk in and you read them and you're like, that's really nice. And then you, you go about your day. That isn't yeah. the case here. We live our leadership principles. We are measured by our leadership principles. In the end, what we know for sure is that we are customer obsessed. And that has been the absolute credit to Jeff's success. Jeff's original flywheel, it's one of my favorite things that you learn about in your first days of becoming an Amazonian, which was a sketch on the back of a napkin, right? That mm -hmm. put the customer experience at the heart and a flywheel and these mechanical mechanisms that made the customer experience work. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that, being a leader at Amazon means that we start from our customers and we work backwards from their needs. Mm -hmm. And we don't really worry about competitors. You know, so much I remember in my days, at, you know, other companies – um, you do these massive competitive analysis, right? Yeah. Right. And it's really good to know what your competitors are doing, but most of their strategies were often formulated on your competitor's space in an industry. But when you do something as unique as formulating your entire company's strategy, um, on vigorously earning and keeping customer trust, all of that doesn't matter, you know? And mm -hmm. so for us, you know, while we pay attention to con competitors, we obsess over our customers. And I mean it that, that if you, you know, the difference between doing the right thing and the wrong thing as a leader is whether the right thing is always the win for the customer. Mm -hmm. And so having that sense of ownership, you know, I'm not just an employee of Amazon. I'm an owner of Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, and that is um, so important to being a leader and I think is so core to the way that Jeff has structured the company and that, you know, we don't work in silos. We are, the way that I look at it is this dynamic ecosystem of inventors and creators and people that come from all different disciplines, but yet we are owners. And so for that, we don't really look at short-termisms and short-term results, which, you know, before I got here, I remember being at companies where we lived for the quarter. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right? We, mm. Our decisions were made on how we were going to deliver shareholder value every quarter versus how am I going to deliver customer value every day mm -hmm. and don't sacrifice that long-term value for short-term results. Yeah. And when you're measured by those mechanisms, when you're measured by, you know, uh, you know, by being a leader who loves inventing things um, or, you know, somebody who is on a place of uh, constantly learning that mm -hmm. if, you know, if you thought you got out of school and you knew it all, this isn't going to be the place for you. But if you yeah, got out of school and said, that was the first chapter of my learning, right? And my curiosity is going to take me into new possibilities where I'm going to try to explore them. And I'm going to make lots of little bets, both on myself and our customers. And we're going to do this together. 
that is a really unique place to be. And so, you know, I, I do admire Jeff for being visionary and inclusive um, and um, being right a lot. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is we have a core tenet of not just being right a lot, but also um, earning trust. Mm-hmm. And so it is not from a place of ever being dishonest for self-preservation, because we don't need to do that. I've often found when you are truthful, no matter how embarrassing that truth might be, you actually candidly earn respect from people. Yeah. So when I think about that, it's so important that you see how the, that's the culture that has evolved um, and why I you know, jump out of bed every day to, to get into an office full of folks who are building something that we truly believe in. Yeah. 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 It's, that's great. I mean, there's very few brands I think at the minute who are doing a similar thing. The only ones that spring to mind are Google and Apple. I mean, you know, you think Google, Apple, Amazon, uh, you know, Facebook, if you get into social media and stuff, they just seem to be the brands who are just leading the way. And uh, I think you're totally right as well about, you know, brands 10 years ago or sooner than that, you know, looking at the quarter and trying to make money throughout the quarter rather than thinking long term about things and really paying attention to the customer and what the customer wants. And you can definitely see that on Amazon. If if ever I have trouble, uh, you know, you just ring them up and it's it's sorted within a minute. It's uh, it, it's incredible stuff, and that echoes through other things throughout throughout the brand as well. But I mean, yeah, I, w- I would love to go into what it is, you know, your your role at Amazon. I, I would give an overview of it, but I definitely wouldn't be able to do justice if I was <laughs> to explain what the Internet of Things is and uh, what you're up to there. Uh, can you give us an overview of the Internet of Things and tell us a bit about your role within the team? Absolutely. So. Um, let, let me start with, you know, what is the Internet of Things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at its simplest, the Internet of Things is a neural network of connected sensors, right, that has been growing in, I would say, since for the, the last 10 years. And it is anything, any device, um, and I say device, but that could be a sensor, it could be a washing machine, it could be uh, a building that is actually connected to the Internet. And so, so much of these devices put out data, uh, a tremendous amount of data. Some of it is very machine-like data, but, um, you know, where we are striving to get to is in these early days, creating tools that make um, the Internet of Things far more uh, democratized than it has been in years past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it used to be that if you were going to invest in a new connected device or make something that was new and connected to the internet, it required a tremendous amount of technical knowledge. And so as we are really looking at this ecosystem that continues to evolve in this neural network, right, the Internet of Things has truly emerged as one of the core drivers of a general technology platform that is revolutionizing our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're starting to see that piece of it and it is playing an enormous role in the, um, you know, in the fourth industrial revolution. Often you hear our CEOs talk about it in the form of Industry 4.0. 
mm-hmm. um, right? Where they're rethinking how their companies are built and made, but everything has a systematic connectivity to a digital space. And, you know, a lot of that often took a tremendous amount of investment uh, okay. to do that because you needed highly technical folks to do that. Mm-hmm. And so my team uh, that I am leading is on a mission to design the world to work for 100% of humanity in the shortest amount of time possible <laughs> without disadvantage to anybody. Because what we know is the I, is IoT is revolutionizing business. And the more companies that have access to it, the better off we are. And that is going to be true of, you know, getting the data from machines and understanding it to create a more efficient ecosystem mm-hmm. or to run more efficient, uh, efficiently. Um, let's say commercial buildings is a really good example of where you start to take a look at things like commercial buildings um, and say, what is their impact on, uh, on the environment? Mm-hmm. Well, through the Internet of Things, I have a tremendous amount of data that's being out that say, if we do these three or four things right, you can actually start to save more energy. Um, But what really gets exciting for me is that today, you know, so much of the tools that we are designing, um, you know, are far more accessible to somebody who does not have command of a command line. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if, you know, so much early in IoT, it was really an IT thing, right? That was an initiative out of IT, but we are creating products um, for the operational technologist. That's the COO, the CXO, the CMO to come in and say, I want to create a new connected device, or I'd like to connect my enterprise in a way that I make it easier for people to work. And Mm -hmm. most of those tools today, like I said, they're, they exist, but they exist really far down in what we call the stack right in the technology stack yeah, yeah and what's exciting to me is bringing iot and artificial intelligence together so that what we're doing is not creating a bunch of things that put out more data because the reality is we're in cognitive overload over data mm-hmm. um, but that we're doing so that what we get to is um, tools that enable any enterprise of any size to be able to get to an intelligent enterprise because an intelligent enterprise will make remarkably different choices about their business model. They will make remarkably different choices about the kind of business they are in when they have the tools to make those choices. Today, they are at a place of they have most people are sitting on top of so much Internet of Things data that they simply don't know where to begin to sift through it. And often that data takes years to drive drive insight out of. Mm -hmm. And you and I both know coming out of the world of marketing, insight leads to aha, right? (laughs) And you go, oh, right, aha, that's an idea. And that idea can transform the operations of a company, not just to work more efficiently, but potentially, you know, save enormous – you know, enormous ways of looking at it and going, God, this is also plays into our sustainability plan. This also mm. plays into these other plans that are moving at a snail's pace 
um, because I can't sift through that data because today it's either sitting in a siloed warehouse um, and not in the cloud and not accessible to people so that they can utilize it in the right way. So. If you, you know, took it at, at the 30,000 feet, you know, in, 20 years in the future, everything will be connected to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And when everything is connected to everyone, you start to rethink your logistics systems and all those things and how they work. But yeah. fundamentally, to, to make the change, you actually need tools uh, to be able to do that. And my team is in a place of not just designing the devices, right, but also designing the platforms and the tools mm -hmm. that um, that companies need to begin their own Internet of Things initiatives. That's really interesting. I uh, I used to work in a team. I'm not... I'm, I'm guessing you guys have uh, worked with the the Alexa, the uh, Amazon Echo Alexa. Absolutely, that's yeah, yeah. my favorite. That's my favorite Internet of Thing. No, I, I absolutely <laughs> love it. But uh, where I work, we were given a uh, an Alexa when it when it first came out to play with, and I was I was working with um, software engineers and coders, and you know, really really smart guys. And their task basically was to essentially break apart the foundations of the product deep down into the code and try and enhance the quality of the conversation between uh, Alexa and the consumer. And I remember thinking at the time uh, how much they'd have to, I wonder how much they'd have to tweak the sort of the algorithms or whatever it is to make the product feel as human as possible. And I know Alexa have been d doing super sort of well over the last few years, but when do you think it'll be that this form of artificial intelligence becomes sort of like fully embedded within everyday life. I mean, it, it seems to be kind of there at the minute, but it's not fully, fully there. Like if you sort of take the, the property market, for example, mm -hmm. when do you think it might be when property developers actually start um, installing Alexa's like behind walls in the kitchen. Do you think we'll get to a stage where that's just the norm? So what I would tell you is we're there. Oh, the wow, future okay. is here. Mm -hmm. It's just unevenly distributed right now. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I think there, you know, we talk to so many different, you know, a big part of the IOT of this is being able to embed those things where you want them. It doesn't matter what thing that is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously we make remarkable things that have it embedded, um, but we have made, um, you know, we have made her um, embeddable in any IOT device if you know if you so want and one of the things that I love so much about our ecosystem of skills is that it's an open eco uh, ecosystem mm -hmm. that any brand can come in and create a, an intelligent skill and so what I would tell you is that I don't think that there's necessarily going to be um, <clears throat> necessarily just uh, maybe one voice uh, behind it, but you're certainly starting to see that voice embedded in places that you didn't didn't know it was. One of my favorite things to do actually is going to amazon.com and clicking on both the skills, um, but also all the connected devices from third-party manufacturers, right, who are embedding her directly into that. And the only reason I'm not saying her name right now is because I'm worried she's going to trigger a conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I was going to say. In our say, house, we call her the, you know, we call her the glorious Missy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, smart move, smart move. I can imagine that would get quite frustrating. Uh, do you think it'll get to the point where you'll be able to ch- change the, or you might be able to do so already, change the, uh, so rather than saying Alexa, do you think you might be able to tweak the name of it? You can do it today. Oh, you can. Um, you okay. can yes, you can do. You can do it today. Um, wow. You know, it is. If you go into your um, Divine Miss A app, mm. and um, and you look there, you can actually. It is what what is the trigger word, right? Ah, okay. So you you can in that core feature, you can do that today. So, you know, the you can customize it, and we're really trying to put so much of the power of this intelligence into the hands of our users. Mm. Because here's what I know for sure. Customers are way smarter than we are. We we try to do these and, um, you know, innovate in such inclusive ways that, you know, I want the customers to feel like they're, they have a say in how we design these things. Because mm. the reality is, is that we don't have all the answers, but if we listen to our customers really carefully, they're going to give us answers that inspire yet new innovations. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's totally true. It, it it just made me think then when when you were talking. There's there's been times within technology where sometimes things haven't sort of progressed or become as popular or or as mainstream as you'd think. Three uh, D TVs spring to mind uh, as as soon as I say that. Obviously, there's a there was I might be wrong, but I think there was kind of like a supply and demand issue where. They were making all these 3D TVs, but they didn't really have the content to show on it. And with VR too, you know, VR has been around for 20 plus years. I remember this old Nintendo headset, which used air quotes VR and everything pointed in the direction of artificial artificial intelligence. But do you think there will be a similar issue with sort of virtual assistants where people sort of nibble at the idea, but don't fully buy? Or do you think it'll take a long time for... Uh, or it might take time, a long time, for people to fully adjust to, because I, I I probably give it around about five years between before people start to become fully all right with the idea of being around all this technology and being okay with how intrusive they once thought it felt. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do, and you know it, it's. Here's one thing I never do is predict the uh, predict the future. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. I can only tell. I can only share with you what I know for sure. Right? What's what's true now? Um, you know. Although I will tell you that we do live here at Amazon. We do live a a good two to five years in the future, and that that is mm-hmm. our purpose. But here's what I will say: we know for sure. Right? We we have more than a, a hundred million devices in the marketplace that have. Um, uh, the Divine Massey pre-installed, um, and we're only seeing that grow. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is super exciting because the more accessible, again, you know, the, when you get to play the role of designing the tools um, that make those technologies more accessible for people to embed into their inventions, mm-hmm. right, that uh, we continue to expand the ecosystem, I think that we will see that is a, a force multiplier, um, so what's interesting, I don't think that we're going to see just one, you know, kind of device. We're going to see many and, and you're going to see them in different ways, just as you gave the, in the wall example, mm-hmm. you know, we're seeing them in the kitchen. I'm seeing it in the bathroom. I'm seeing it in my closet. I'm seeing it in all these different places. And yet, 
um, you know, I think we are now having a conversation about, you know, where are they best adopted, right? Mm -hmm. Where are the best use cases? And the reality is, is, um, you know, we're learning that every day and our customers tell us what they are. Right. Yeah. Our customers by just utilizing it. I love, you know, the best part of being a designer is knowing that you have the humble empathy to observe what customers are doing with it. And one of my favorite use cases behind um, Echo is um, a very inclusive design tenant. Uh, it, it, it helps folks who are hard of seeing um, and aging, uh, you know, aging parents whose dexterity through arthritis may be really tough on a phone, but voice is still there and still open. And that to me, um, to see the usages, everyday usages of um, being able to control their world in a way that makes the world more accessible to them is not just heartwarming, but it drives you to continue to do more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when it tugs at the heartstrings like that, and you you see what sort of how uh, it really is having an effect on people, not just for leisure, but for just for everyday usage and stuff like that. I um I spoke to someone from Uber last week who. Uh, was telling me about what they're sort of looking into in the in the future uh, of sort of technology, and surprisingly, they're not focusing on driverless cars. However, they are looking at flying cars. Yeah, which um, I, I was just gobsmacked by when they mentioned that, and hey, they're calling and the, it. If th- but if you think about it, it was General Motors at the World's Fair, right in the fifties, who promised us jetpacks. I want my jetpack. <laughs> Like I'm there already. Like, why do I need to drive on a road when I could? When if you can turn everybody into a pilot, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? You know, and I grew up with superheroes. Wonder Woman's one of my favorite ones. It was definitely my little sisters, and I used to (laughs) spend my time trying to build that invisible, invisible flying ship. Mm. You know, Um, and I think that you know, as we look now, the thing that's the most exciting is I might actually live to see it. No, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I I would love to. You you think we'd be kind of there already, didn't you? Yeah, with the whole jetpack. There's a there's a guy who I follow on YouTube who, uh, I think he was an ex marine in the UK, and he built uh, one of the first sort of jetpacks. And um, I think he's just been given permission to use it in uh, in, in an area called Limpston in the UK, where they do all the marine sort of training. But yeah, sort of off topic there. But the, uh, the Uber anyway, they, they're calling it uh, the Uber Air, and they're actually hoping to release it next year, which when it, when he mentioned next year, I was just thinking that's crazy considering we haven't really heard anything, or maybe next year they're going to announce something. Just looking at this and like all the different types of technology, which is fairly similar, do you think designers uh, or like the average traditional designer's role will change um Yes. You know, with, with... So what it, yeah, I do. Mm. So it's <laughs> I, got to, right? Well, here's what I would tell you. And I think, but I think this is going to be true of every discipline um, mm. and creative. Um, you know, the emergence of the design technologist is merely a new generation of designers who understand how to code. Mm. 
who understand that the world that we are building today is written in code. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, but you're seeing that in med tech, ed tech, you, like give, give me an industry and I'll give you the tech slang for it, right? <laughs> the technification of it. And yeah. so if you know that like FinTech and med tech, there isn't going to be one creative discipline in any one of those industries that doesn't have a, a understanding that the world is written in code and in order for us to design it you're gonna have to be a design technologist the design yeah, technologist yeah. is merely you know the way that we used to think about ux you know some separate uh you know orthogonal thing to design but in the reality there there's a difference and so what i'm seeing now is the emergence of things like architect uh, you know architectural design and tech um, you know, design technologists being in those spaces are really exciting to me. And that's why in the paper that I wrote 2020, the emergence of the design technologist, number one in-demand role in the United States today is a designer who can code. And so mm -hmm. what that tells me is that in a 10-year period, if you're a designer who doesn't code, you very likely may find yourself on the unemployment line. And mm -hmm. the beauty of what we have today is that in order to educate yourself in, you know, writing code, frankly, all you need to do is a YouTube search. The information's <laughs> yeah. there, yeah, right? Absolutely. And what's what's really exciting to me is one of the organizations I follow is called Tech Jobs USA. And Tech Jobs USA is an org that is um, <clears throat> going to the interior of America and retraining these skill sets out of the environment, uh, sorry, out of the existing information that's sitting in our environment that they just maybe didn't have access to or knowledge that it was there. So I go from being a coal miner to potentially being a design technologist sitting inside a windmill factory, mm -hmm. right? That's the opportunities there, it's whether or not we decide we're going to sit on Twitter and be slacktivists or get to the business of reinventing yeah. industry. That's the point in time we're at. And so what's really exciting to me about the design technologist emergence is that you are seeing that emergence just filter into every aspect of, um, of design and every discipline of creative. Mm -hmm. I am um, sorry. I I lost you for a second. Then the sound went. I lost the last few words ah. you were saying. <laughs> I I got the majority of it. I would love to learn how to code, and I I you're totally right. You can do anything on YouTube these days. You can just you know you can become anything you want just by looking at YouTube. And I've I've tried dabbling in code before and JavaScript and HTML and CSS and stuff. But I guess I'm just I'm not lazy. I'm just I'm I'm more of a visual kind of thinker and yeah. but I I do have friends who code and it's incredible it's an incredible skill because they're basically they're there sort of writing writing away and they're sort of envisioning something visual without something visual being there and it's kind of it's it's a different sort of skill it feels like and there's so much to sort of as a designer who sort of doesn't code, I guess it feels like there's so much going on. Like if you look at sort of like social me social media content, mm -hmm. um, that I think from a designer point of view, that could be another sort of area, exciting area to to start watching out for. 
Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. you know what, there's a, a phenomenal course at MIT um, that you don't even need to take the course, sorry, MIT, um, but you can go buy the book and read it. It's called Civic Media. And then yeah. go follow Joy Ito, who is the head of the MIT uh, Media Lab, um, because I think there's tremendous ways to think about social media that can be used for good. Mm-hmm. But let's be really clear about what the intent of what, how we use technology. I think that, um, you know, both of our countries and democracies as a whole are going through a, an awakening that the tools that we created that were so democratic might, um, you know, be turned against us. And the reality is, is that maybe we were spending too much time with poor intent in those technologies anyways. Mm-hmm. And so what's exciting to me is to see the emergence of content creators who are really focused on filling the social media airwaves um, with more civic-minded initiatives that get people organized um, to take on some of these really big challenges. That's exciting to me. It's mm-hmm. not about the time that you spend on it. I always look at it and say, you know, we can all sit back and go, oh, it's a social media problem. Well, you know, when Hitler came out with Mein Kampf, was it really the book's fault? that he wrote it, right? Yeah. So look at it and I, I look at it and go, okay, well, you know, we need to reclaim our tools. Mm-hmm. We don't need to come rescind from them, but we need to reclaim them. And we need to reclaim them in a way that says we need to be intelligent and know the difference between a sock puppet and somebody who's astroturfing and Russian bots who are spreading, you know, disinformation, which is a lot to ask for. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And we and we need to be as those tech innovators looking for those things. But now that we have an inform, we need to reinform public, and get to the business of the initiative of crafting all of that content in a way that inspires, that informs, um, that reconnects us to things Mm -hmm. that matter most to us in our lives, Um, not reconnecting us to, you know, underground hate groups. Um, Or, you know, if you went on Twitter today and you saw what was trending, you went, is that really the only thing that's going on in the world? And the answer (laughs) to that is no. That yeah. is not the only thing that's going on in the world. If mm-hmm. you look at my Design 2020 study, what you're going to see is that the Twitter sphere has completely missed what's going on in the space race. And it's not a race. It's a collaboration now. Yeah, right? Absolutely. You're going to go like, oh, whoa, you know what? This conversation about legalization of marijuana is so overdue because there's so many folks and benefits to it that we get oh, to yeah. rethink the system. So there's so much going on. That if you go on to social media channels as a creator, my dare to you is to look at it as a piece of civic media mm-hmm. and to put an intent into that media, not just to win an election, right? Yeah. But to better the world and solve some of these really tough problems with smarter conversations as opposed to clapbacks. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It kind of feels like um, the social media is sort of saturated with all this sort of content, which is just trying to uh, poke and aggravate people. Yeah, it's 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 a, tr- a tricky one, and it's a subject which interests me massively. You know, sort of social media and what it's used for, and where it's going, and what it you know how we should take it and consider it and stuff. But are you uh, an an avid social media user? 
I am, and I have been for many years. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really funny um, that, you know, it's that I, I used it for many years, but I've used it as a platform to talk about design and in- innovation. Yeah. Generally, hey, here are the things I'm working on. Try to galvanize people that I do utilize it from time to time um, to you know, try to uncover or um, put a spotlight on things that are really important to me. Mm. Um, and so one of the areas that's super important to me that I even posted on, you know, in the morning, one of the first things that I might do is not necessarily just take a look on what's trending, but I go into it every day with a, a, a bit of intent. And right now, um, having more women and people of color and LGBTQ plus people in technology at the table of design debating with us is so important. Um, and not just from a diversity standpoint, it is to me the the inclusion of more people at the table will only make things better, will make our products better, they'll be more innovative, and it always contributes to if we don't have people that are reflective of our customer base um, designing some of the things that we're creating with customer, we may misinterpret the signals coming from our customers. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that initiative and intent while being on social media is really clear. So I tend to use my voice and platform for exactly that. So one of the things, you know, that I think that we consistently hear from uh, people, which is, God, it's so tough to find, you know, women in STEM or women in design. I call it STEAMed, right? Science, technology, engineering, arts, math, and design. So nice. when you get a, you know, I, I'm, it's really tough to find people of color or, you know, Latinos or, um, or LGBTQ people in mm. those, you know, in, in this uh, uh, society. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Is it hard to find? Are we just not in the right spaces? So for me, it's about highlighting those designers um, that are underrepresented um, to people who are out there hiring. Mm. You know, we've got hundreds and even thousands of jobs open across all of tech. And yet we're all complaining about, you know, hey, where are we going to find these folks? Well, guess what? There are online communities and social communities that already exist that we need to start utilizing as as recruiting tools. Yeah. And invite those communities to the table. And the thing that I love, you know, again, the most about being at Amazon is that that intent is in what we do every single day. And so when your values align to the corporate culture's values of an organization, what you walk away with is just a happier existence. And so mm-hmm. that's, you know, my use of social media is correcting information, bad information that's out there. Let's be very clear. There's a lot of, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, corporate hate right now. Yeah, instead yeah. of instead of bringing corporations to the table um, and really fundamentally understanding the problem space. And the second part of that is highlighting uh, underrepresented designers um, in our world to get them connected to the opportunities that are right there for them. Mm. But no, that's that's really interesting that you're um you're you're on social media and you're you know you're using it for the right reasons. Um, I've seen a promotion as well that uh, you were included in. You've got you've got a, a tool coming up uh, with Envision. Is that right? 
I do. I do. So um, next week on uh, Wednesday the 1st, I get to present, um, you know, here is Design 2020. So if you've read Design 2020, fantastic. Mm -hmm. That was just the primer. Nice. Um, you know, what I will be doing over the next year is outlining those trends as they're emerging all the way to 2020 and then talking with the people who are emerging as those leaders in space and entrepreneurship in a limited series podcast. But um, the work that I'm going to be doing with 2020 is really um, to I will be kicking off with Envision. I will have another keynote. And again, you know, what's beautiful at the, the Design 2020 talk is that, you know, it is really about um, both telling the story about what is happening here as we get to 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, because so much of us, you know, it, it feels like, wow, we're, we're 20 years into this thing, into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, let's have an active conversation about where we need to be and what's emerging. Because I think at a time today, we spend a lot of time on what's trending on Twitter versus what's really going on in the real world. Um, yeah. And so a part of that is really shining a light on the people who are leading the charge as a method of inspiration to invite more people into this space, because this space is full of opportunity and there is a ton of work to do. And there simply aren't enough people to do it yet. That sounds that sounds great. Is it? Sorry, did you say it was going to be streamed anywhere, or was it? It is. So the Envision piece is going to be streamed, and mm-hmm. then uh, again, I will be in London, um, in sure. you know, in a few of the folks, hopefully your listeners' backyard, um, and yeah, yeah. you know, uh, at the DNAD as a keynote speaker, and nice. then this year at Cannes, I will be also um, you know again connecting parts of the 2020 conversation to the great creators that are at Can Lions this year, um, okay. you know, all with a run up to what I hope is the, you know, a really good talk with the 3% conference uh, as we run up into 2020. So um, awesome. I, will, so- I will be on the road and talking, you know, talking 2020, but uh, doing so in a way that is inviting, um, you know, people to take part in that 2020 invention. That's great. That's that. That sounds fantastic. And I, I see you're um you're a jury president at DNAD as well. Is that right? I am. I am. Cool. You know, one of the things I really love about the award shows is number one, when you when you get to be on a jury, you get to see some of the world's great creative. Yeah, it absolutely. passes by you, and mm-hmm. the the act of being inspired by people, other people's work is so important. We, you know, award shows um, aren't just for the awardees um, and recognition, but it is a time for us to pause as creators and look at work that is redefining what it means to be creative. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's a, a really exciting time and being jury president um, is such an honor. It's such an honor because, um, you know, I look at the jury that I'm on, which is the digital design jury, and it is just a um, a lineup of rock stars and championship players, you know, mm-hmm. team players um, out of every part of the industry. The diversity is really uncanny. 
Um, and so to be able to have a meeting of the minds and really look at what's defining the bar in digital design. And the exciting part about this is so it's like we've moved in the category from just advertising, although that's a very big part of what doing, but it's actually the tools and the user experiences that are enabling all of this great creativity from other people too. Mm. Um, so to see platforms included in there, to see the internet of things, you know, included in there, right? What are the new device connected devices and spaces um, that are really exciting and that are truly solving problems is a, a remarkable place to be. And, you know, the, that place of uh, being president, um, I look forward just to collaborating and being in a jury room where we can debate what is a good user experience? Mm -hmm. Let's have an honest debate about those things and then come away with a list of people who rightfully worked to define that space. Yeah. I mean, I, I love DNAD as well. I've been there a few years and um, I did some portfolio reviews there a couple of years ago where it was kind of like a mock interview setting with the students and they sort of come in and go through the work and... Um, some of the work is just incredible. I mean, every, each year, it's just the the talent is is just insane. It just keeps on getting better and better. And I was saying this to, to a friend the other day. I kind of every time I see you know a new students piece of work, I just it makes me really reevaluate my whole portfolio of work, <laughs> and I'm just like, you oh, know, that's I, so good. Here, isn't it? And, you know, and I have to tell you, I remember being a student, right, or being at a desk somewhere and getting my DNAD book, you know, or seeing the pencil book that they put out, whether mm -hmm. it was DNAD or uh, One Club, right? They used to put out print books and flipping through the pages as, a, you know, a nascent designer going – one day, one day I'll have work in that show. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so you now look at it and say, I never dreamed I'd be president of that show <laughs> uh, or awesome. in this category. So, you know, to, to have that honor to go from the kid dreaming about putting the work in the show to the, the creative being, you know, awarded, you know, awards in those categories to actually being the president that um, is a, a trajectory that I certainly never imagined for myself and find it quite humbling. Oh yeah, I would too. It was it's it's an incredible achievement, and it's it's an awesome title um, to have as well, jury president at DNAD. But it's um it it's been it's been great. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you and speak to you. And I'm I'm going to come away from this feeling super inspired. Um, everything that you've said is just been an eye opener for me. It really has, and I know the listeners are going to love it as well. Um, and I just, yeah, thanks again for being on. It's um, it's an absolute pleasure to have spoken to you. And yeah, thank you. Absolutely. If I had one thing just to leave you with. Please do, yeah. Yeah, one thing to leave you with and with your listeners for mm. with. We are all creators. We were all born with a creative sense. Sometimes that creativity is trained out of us. Mm -hmm. But we are at one of the most important inflection points in our history. And what I believe, and I know for sure, is that we all have the ability to be problem solvers. Some of us do it a little bit more artfully than others, 
But what I would hope is that folks come away with more of a sense and a semblance of the opportunities that lie in front of us. Because if we only allow the challenges to define us, we will not have taken the opportunity to make the future that has already arrived accessible to everyone. And so my encouragement to you and your listeners is take a step back and a breath. Look at what's in front of us in terms of challenges and apply our creativity to dare to design a little bit of that future today for someone else. That's great. That's that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, thank you so much. Uh, You're yeah, welcome. I, I, I can't thank you enough. I really can't. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joanna. I really appreciate your time and being on. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch through LinkedIn. Let's and do I'll... that. Let's, through LinkedIn and on Twitter, I'm at Jojo Bickley, J-O-J-O Bickley on Twitter. Cool. I'm pretty active there and on LinkedIn. So, uh, you know, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you and your listeners. Absolutely. That sounds great. Thank you so much again, Joanna. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye.